Good evening, and welcome to Rare Book School, June 2003. The next lecture from this podium, from Rare Book School's point of view, uh, will be John Bidwell speaking uh, on Monday, July 7th, on the rise of machine-made paper, a lecture that he has given for us before and that is so entertaining and so useful that we've asked him to come back and repeat it again, something that's fairly simple since he's teaching that week anyway. Our lecture this evening needs no introduction. Thank you, Terry, for that very nice introduction, very, very generous. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's really quite a privilege and, uh, to be here. This, is a, this school has such a reputation, and I've uh, watched the curriculum with envy for, I don't know, decades, I think. And it's just really, I feel very privileged to be here today and to be, to be able to speak with you. Uh, as, uh, let's go ahead to the next slide. We've got a sort of a dance going on here. All right. Uh, this is sort of the epigraph, and for some reason the A and the at are, those are quote marks, uh, open quotes and end quotes. I don't know why. Um, <clears throat> medieval manuscripts are counted among the greatest glories of Western civilization with their gold and painted decoration and their charming miniatures. They have always had immense appeal, and images from them can be seen everywhere, from greeting cards and wrapping paper to expensive facsimiles. Uh, some of you may have, have seen that. It's on an in, inside flap of a dust jacket, which I think is a beautiful place for, for that. Uh, the Special Collections Library would seem to be the ideal institution to guard our medieval manuscripts from change. Uh, the controlled access, controlled environment, white gloves, book snakes, and the watchful eyes of librarians would seem to be adequate measures to maintain a sort of temporal prophylaxis. Uh, protecting the medieval object from an accidental or deliberate intrusion of the 21st century into the medieval space of the manuscript book. Or maybe these measures are there to keep the medieval manuscript from slipping from its own century into ours. They're there to protect us. Uh, the elaborate procedures by which manuscript books are requested and the ceremony with which they're delivered to our reading stands lift our encounter with them out of the normal course of events. The mandatory pencils impress upon us the transitory nature of our own efforts and the monumental, unchanging status of the objects we view. The Special Collections Library is, in fact, a time machine which has miraculously transported this medieval object from its own time, from its own period, and holds it for us in a sort of temporal stasis chamber where we can look at it but cannot touch lest we violate the inexorable laws of time. When I read that over this morning, I said, too many Star Trek reruns. Uh, okay. And now, I'm sure I don't need to tell anyone in this room that the impression that we are viewing a medieval object, an object lifted out of time, however powerfully we may feel it or want to feel it, is illusory. By the time a medieval manuscript has reached the safe harbor of a special library, it's undergone centuries of wear and tear, neglect, bookworms, fire and rain. The library is not a time machine at all, but merely a sort of dike against time, designed to prevent further deterioration, further transformation. And so our medieval manuscripts are not medieval objects at all, but more likely 18th or 19th or 20th century objects placed under glass, frozen in modernity, 
It is only the power of our historiographical models and our own desire which makes them into medieval objects. We look past the effects of time and convince ourselves that we are viewing the originary medieval object, not its disgraced and fallen form. Um, these are the major points I'd like to make uh, this evening, this afternoon. A medieval manuscript that we can see, and maybe even touch surreptitiously, in a rare book library in the year of our Lord, 2003, is not, in fact, medieval. It belongs fully to the 21st century. We need to understand the temporal contingency of the intellectual moves and the cultural values which allow us to perceive these objects in the face of our own present experience of them as medieval. How have these culturally conditioned values arising chiefly in the 19th and 20th centuries shaped what we see when we look at manuscripts, and more importantly, what we do not see? And as a corollary to this, uh, manuscripts change over time. They exist in time, not outside it, and although the physical wages of the years are perhaps the most evident uh, form of change, they're not the most significant force which transforms them. Manuscripts change as our institutions change, as the disciplines from which we study them change, as we change, and indeed as our world changes. Um, I'm just going to trace briefly some of the changes that, have, uh, that manuscript books have undergone in the last 500 years, the, the period that sh uh, separates us from them, uh, 500 or more years. Uh, Renaissance humanists were interested in medieval manuscripts primarily as sources for works of Greek and Latin classical antiquity. And it's they who first give us this idea that, the ma that manuscripts are to be looked through, not at. Manuscripts are dark glasses or perhaps distorting lenses through which we may glimpse the lost glories of antiquity and its literature. The unique value of medieval manuscripts for the humanists lies in their ability to let us see beyond them. And although, although the humanists were quite critical of the disgraceful way in which manuscripts of classical literature had been treated by the barbarian Swiss and German monks, uh, once the humanists had made their own transcriptions of these texts, they had little interest in the manuscripts themselves. And in more, in more than one case, they lost or destroyed what for, would be for us today a very precious artifact of early medieval culture. Uh, yeah, I always like to give one practical piece of advice when I'm giving a talk like this, and for today it is never lend a book to a Renaissance humanist. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, and early printers had a similar attitude towards those manuscript books they sought so diligently to imitate and type. Once they had set a manuscript in type, they often disposed of the manuscript. This is what Reynolds and Wilson call the one-way street of the, printed, of the printed book, um, of the manuscript they'd used. In their view, the new technology had adequately supplanted the old. They had reproduced mechanically the manuscript uh, and did not need the manuscript itself anymore. In the 16th and 17th centuries, handwritten books continued to be produced, but now more and more as personal florilegia. In fact, in this period, we often find manuscripts which are personal copies of printed books. And it's very interesting to be looking through a manuscript and see a printer's colophon written there by hand. Um, <clears throat> handwritten texts also served, as in the case of uh, the 17th century Spanish poet Gongora, as a means of circulating one's own work uh, among a small circle of friends. 
And it's, it's in these centuries, the 16th and 17th centuries, that we see the first signs of the antiquarian interest in medieval manuscripts, which is a part of our own construction of medieval manuscripts today. Uh, for example, there was a, an erudito, a kind of, or curioso, as he's uh, sometimes called in Seville, Gonzalo Argote de Molina, uh, who collected and published even some medieval texts in the 16th century. And he went so, even so far in his love to, for this kind of quaint flavor of the medieval texts he was publishing that he would amend them to make them sound more medieval. Um, uh, so in a kind of ironic way, he repeats the moves of the, of the humanists. He's looking through these medieval manuscripts, not at them, trying to see, trying to glimpse, uh, not this idealized Rome that Petrarch, for example, was interested in, but some kind of medieval ideal of his own concoction. Uh, with the Enlightenment, uh, there are new attitudes toward medieval manuscript books. The encyclopedic ambitions of the 18th century the belief in the possibility of total knowledge led to a view of manuscripts as objects to be accumulated, cataloged, indexed. It's in this century that some of the great national libraries begin to be formed as centralized, some would say absolutist, power enables manuscripts to be brought from the hinterlands to the metropolitan seats of power. It's in this age, too, uh, with its interest in the mechanical, that the first modern editions of medieval texts begin to appear, often produced according to the mechanical rules of textual criticism being developed at the same time in the fields of biblical and classical scholarship. And it's here again, I think, that the idea that medieval manuscripts are objects to be looked through, not at, takes root. The assumption seems to have been that we should look uh, for, say, Juan Ruiz, the author of a 14th century medieval Spanish text, uh, in the manuscript, surviving manuscript of his work, in the same way that we might search for God or Ovid in uh, a medieval, uh, in a biblical or classical text. Uh, but this is an assumption, and I don't know that uh, a medieval manuscript that we use to reconstitute a classical text needs to be used in the same way when we're trying to find a medieval text. And this is a distinction that uh, people who produce editions of medieval texts haven't really thought about. Uh, just because you take, you'd work a certain way to get Ovid or God out of a medieval manuscript doesn't mean you retrieve a medieval text in the same way. Uh, it's in this period, too, that the language of codicological description begins to be developed, uh, creating one more simulacrum of the medieval manuscript. Uh, a new, I hear some people have been working on book description recently, huh? A new taxonomic way to reproduce rather than look at manuscripts. Uh, the trends of artifact, collection, and me mechanical edition continue into the 19th century when medieval manuscripts become more and more uh, significant as a part of the evidence uh, needed to legitimize and uh, to legitimize the newly developing modern European nation states. In these medieval manuscripts are found the roots of our people, our language, our culture. They are proof of the ancient origins and the manifest destiny of the French or the English or the Spanish people. And they document in material form the ancient roots of these cultures uh, that they are made to represent. It's in the 19th century, too, that academic study of medieval manuscripts begins, as the so-called modern languages become an important organizing principle for structuring universities. Uh, the 20th century is the inheritor of all these trends. Medieval manuscripts seem to shift between two major poles, 
One is that these are objects which have value in themselves as collectible artifacts of the past. The other is that manuscripts contain texts or works of art which can be transcribed, edited, annotated, or reproduced in book form. Um, once this task has been completed, medieval texts now look conveniently like 20th century texts. And university-based medievalists can write literary critical works about them, just like their more fortunate colleagues who have Henry James or Faulkner to work with. Additions of manuscripts into more legitimate modern forms is the first step for medievalists to gain cultural capital in the university. Uh, it's, and it's also a way for them to compete with James and Faulkner on the, bookshelves, uh, on the shelves of bookstores. Well, this was just a very uh, superficial history of some of the ways that manuscripts have changed in the last 500 years, and obviously uh, needs to be much more nuanced, but I've, I've gone over some of the major points. Um, I think that this survey suggests, first of all, as I'd hope to show, that these objects do change. They do serve differing functions as the needs of the cultures viewing them change. And the second point is that in none of these cases have we sought to, to understand medieval manuscripts in themselves. They are valued as objects of another time, or else they are a source of text, which can be lifted out of them and reproduced in a more easily digestible modern form. Uh, so Western modernity has dealt uh, with medieval manuscripts by reproducing them, uh, whether in humanist uh, hand, in the humanist hand, in type, in uh, bibliographic description, or else it is sought to look beyond them for a glimpse at an ideal of classical or medieval times as, a, as an originary archetype of which they are only the debased simulacrum. My title, The 21st Century Medieval Manuscript, is not intended to be prophetic of future trends. My goals are frankly prescriptive. For in our reductive approaches to manuscript books, we have ignored many, many aspects of them, aspects of them which are neither objects or texts or art. Uh, they are ob uh, aspects of them which are neither reproducible or reducible or abstractable. We have not really looked at manuscripts yet, and it's my goal here this evening to urge those of you, uh, these people in this room, who work most intimately with these books, to begin to look at them in new ways, to see things about them we have not yet seen, because we have always been looking beyond them. Uh, and a second goal is to encourage us, as readers of manuscripts, to see them not as intellectually inert objects of bygone cultures, but as entities, uh, as stuff, I like that term that I've been hearing this afternoon, as stuff which can have meaning, can have import and relevance for readers of the 21st century. Uh, these manuscripts have not only penetrated the space of the 21st century, they are in the 21st century along with most of us. Right. Um, <clears throat> perhaps, uh, perhaps some, even many of you, are silently protesting that the designation of these objects as 21st century objects is absurd, uh, preposterous. This object was produced in the Middle Ages. It originates in the Middle Ages. Therefore, it is medieval. In characterizing manuscripts as medieval, we have simply made a choice. Uh, quite in line with other basic moves of moder modern thought and modern science, to privilege origins over presence. 
We've taken an accidental quality of the object and transformed that quality into an essential one. And what we have taken to be the defining quality of this object, its originary status, is merely, ironically enough, a projection of our own cultural values on the object. The same uh, historically determined intellectual categories which led Darwin to the origin of the species have led us to the originary medieval manuscript. Uh, and we've seen the medieval manuscript as alive only near its point of origin, but as somehow dead or intellectually inert thereafter. Now, one of the th main things that we have looked through in viewing ma manuscript books is, quite naturally, the printed book. Uh, people from the era of print almost inevitably, I don't think there's much of a way to avoid this, see medieval manuscripts as a variant, uh, perhaps a crude and primitive uh, variant at best, but as another form of the printed book. We've sort of reversed the temporal sequence there, and we're always see, seeing in our minds somehow the printed book as prior to the manuscript book, at least in our formulation of our ideas of what the manuscript book is. Uh, the underlying analogy seems to be, as the printed book is the product of the technology of printing, so medieval manuscripts are the project, uh, product of the varying, tech, varying technologies of the handmade book and of the various uh, concepts of ordinatio, uh, book layout, that go into its design. So uh, we, we think we can take a medieval manuscript book and let it stand as evidence of the results of handmade book technology. And we forget that these manuscripts, as we have them, are almost always representative of only a single stage in the evolution of a manuscript book. Uh, they repre they're representative of a step in a process of becoming, that is, the manuscript book. Uh, and so we think we can put them on greeting cards or wrapping paper or inexpensive facsimiles, on websites, on men's ties, and that um, this static representation captures legitimately a medieval manuscript. The 21st century medieval manuscript is in fact still open, still subject to modification, to supplementation, uh, an infinite difference of sense. It is always in movement, and it's our challenge to learn to perceive that motion in all its glacial slowness. The 21st century medieval manuscript is an ongoing process rather than some fixed and static point of origin, uh, point along a timeline. Uh, a second source of our ideology of the medieval manuscript, as I've already suggested, are the modern academic disciplines most engaged in studying it, namely uh, literary and result, uh, related text-based studies like history of philosophy or science, law, uh, art history, and codicology. Art historians, of course, are condemned to look at manuscripts bearing art. Uh, and this already excludes a great majority of medieval manuscripts. Students of texts have to look at manuscripts bearing something that fits our categories of text, that has a certain length, that maybe has an author, or at least belongs to some recognizable genre of text. And we're largely blind to the hundreds and thousands of thousands of fragmentary written elements which occupy the margins, fly leaves, textual and interlinear linear spaces of the medieval manuscript. We'll look at some of these in a bit. 
Uh, bibliographers and codicologists have to work with objects that can be described using the hieratic language of codicology, impenetrable to most men and women of goodwill. Okay. Uh, like the, my bibliography teacher is in the room, so I thought I had to get that in. Okay. Like the printed page itself, the academic disciplines under which we study the medieval manuscript already predict what we will see, what we will find when we look at it, and uh, as a result, what we think the medieval manuscript is. It's a perfectly circular process. Now, I'm just going to read off a, uh, a list of oppositions to sort of uh, op terms in opposition to kind of keep in mind uh, the difference between, say, the 20th century medieval manuscript and the 21st century medieval manuscript. Uh, on the one hand, uh, the right hand is going to be the 20th, and this will be the 21st. What the heck? Uh, mechanical, organic. Static, active. Uh, determinate, indeterminate like tomatoes, I think. Uh, order, chaos. Reductionism, complexity and multiplicity. And in the idea of multiplicity is the idea of multiplying. And that's a powerful part of this. Uh, object, subject. Absolute, relative. Singular, plural, unity, fragmentation. Uh, these sets of op uh, oppositions, I think, uh, suggest what, what the difference between the 20th century manuscript and the 21st century manuscript uh, may be. So let's see the first slide here. All right, here we have uh, Les Très Richeurs du Duc de Berry. Uh, this is the month of August uh, from this uh, well-known book of hours, and it will stand for, here for what we may think of as a typical medieval manuscript. Uh, medieval, medievalists have every right to take pride in pages like this one. They're objects of remarkable beauty, and I think it's fair to suppose that when the general public thinks at all of the medieval manuscript, they have a mental picture in their mind of uh, illuminated manuscripts like this one. Uh, and this is the kind that finds its way onto the wrapping paper, the greeting cards, and men's ties. And it's certainly beautiful and, and captivating. But at the same time, it serves to, uh, to reinforce for us the various, uh, very uh, stereotypical ideas of an older, static culture, which we uh, perhaps unconsciously extend from our view of the Middle Ages to our view of the medieval manuscript. That is, we apply the same stereotypes we have of the medieval period to the manuscripts which uh, are created in that period. Uh, here we have some nobles uh, taking a leisurely ride through the fields of August, and here we have some dark and lowly peasants uh, skinny dipping in the, in the river. Uh, even the stars are in their proper alignment. Uh, they're cyclical alignment. God's in his heaven, all's right with the world. Uh, and, th and in this world, the very possibility for God, society, and time to be out of sync with each other is unthinkable in our understanding of what this uh, type of illustration means. Uh, the Middle, Middle Ages is this perfect blending of time, uh, spirit, and culture. Let's go to the next one. For every manuscript like the one we were just looking at, you can find dozens of pages like this one in which something seems to have gone seriously awry. Uh, this is a 13th and 14th century miscellany uh, on the Trojan War, and these are the opening fly leaves uh, of the, the manuscript itself. 
Uh, on, this, on these fly leaves are bits and pieces of annals, of chronicles, forgotten bits of history. Uh, I think it's maybe right here are the measurements of the size of the major churches in Rome. Uh, there's some papal bulls over there. And all of these elements are fighting for space among the, the wormholes, the tears, the stains that you see on these pages. Uh, the dark blotches here that seem to be coterminous with a lot of the te uh, textual spaces are in fact the after effects of reagents that were applied by 19th century scholars in a desperate attempt to recover even this fragmented historical knowledge for the National Museum of 19th century culture. Even as the illumination from the Book of Hours that we saw captures in a page a static, cyclical moment in time, the fly leaves of this uh, Madrid manuscript speak to us about another sort of time, one that has not been successfully captured in the pages of history. They speak of fragmentation, loss, and desperate attempts at recovery. Let's go to the next one. Uh, here's another uh, illuminated manuscript, one of these typical medieval pages. I, I was going to design a, type, a tie like this and wear it tonight, but um, I didn't get around to that. Um, okay, these are the hours of Francois and, and Charles de Guise, and uh, the clear intent here is to fill every space on the page, uh, to control it, to define the page. There's nothing that we could really add or take away to this, this particular page design without re destroying the entire page. And once again, for us, I think we read into this page the sort of monolithic and totalizing idea of medieval culture that fits our own stereotypes about it. Uh, this sort of uh, nostalgia for simpler times, this lost innocence of Europe. So let's go to the next one. All right. Uh, although the overall aspect of this page has a certain graphical quality when we just kind of glance at it, uh, the focus is on text, but a highly fragmented text. Uh, it would be very difficult to imagine a Lachmanian edition of this page. Um, there's an unusual amount of writing concentrated up here on the top. The page is completely out of balance. Uh, but the people who produced this page obviously aren't dealing with the same set of criteria as the ones that produced the prior page. But interestingly enough, this sort of branching, which was the primary decorative motif of the, the slide we were just looking at, is also here, is also here on this page, uh, and seems to be a mode of organizing knowledge into ever more precise units. And so the juxtaposition of these two pages suggests that the branching of knowledge was itself understood as organic, as in the previous page, as natural. Whereas I think when we look at, at outlines like this, we put them in the category of artificial, mechanical. Um, note, too, that on the student page here in the upper third, yeah, I think I've already mentioned that, uh, some of these branches actually rejoin, grow together again. And I think that's a very interesting sort of phenomenon, especially for people that live in such analytic times as we do, or medieval people did. All right, uh, let's, let's go into, uh, well, let's stay right here, okay. So the illuminated manuscripts uh, that we saw in the, the, second, uh, the, the, uh, the two books of ours are remarkable, and they certainly are. I'm not denying that they're not a significant variant of the medieval manuscript, but they're by no means the norm. 
looking for every manuscript like these, there are hundreds, maybe even thousands, with these far cruder sort of ad hoc illustrations that function more as readers' glosses or as an attempt by the reader to illustrate uh, his or her own text, rather than, as, than part of any original or even uh, later page design. Um, <clears throat> You know, and these, as we might expect, I like this guy with the knife here. Uh, that's, yeah. And then there's a, it looks like a lion over here. Some of these, I mean, this is much better than I could do. Uh, I'll tell you that. There's some degree of artistic skill that went into these. But uh, just going to the next one. Others are just doodles like uh, any of us might make. It's hard to see this here. I'll, I'll blow it up for you in a second. Um, this particular text is a Latin version of the Chronica of San Martin, and belong to the Cathedral Library of, of Toledo. And there, over here you can see a little chicken head, all right? Probably a rooster head. There's a, looks like a sort of a comb or a dunce hat. I w I've never been sure what on top of the chicken. Let's go ahead and, and do the next. Uh, yeah, there we go. So it's a little better here. This, these are like, you know, third-generation reproductions of these uh, texts. But there's a little chicken, and there's like a, the dunce cap or the comb. Okay. Now, this, this little uh, doodle of the chicken uh, is beside the entry for the year 508 Aburbe Condita, and it makes reference to the Gauls. It says there, Indeed, the Gauls are ferocious in courage, having bodies stronger than other men. Now, you can't help but think that the doodler here is an Iberian, uh, <laughs> and that he's provided his own gloss on the bravery of the Gauls. And it's based on this very old pun between Gali, meaning Gauls, and Gali, meaning roosters. Uh, now he may have seen the Frenchman as strutting roosters, too. Who knows? Uh, but this kind of uh, doodle, there, there are you know, millions of these things in medieval manuscripts that have gone unnoticed and, unnoticed and yet make, I think, very interesting comments about how these texts mean and how they meant. And so we won't really know how the, be able to say that we know the 21st century medieval manuscript until we've done a thorough study, not just of illumination, manuscript illumination is in the books of ours, but of the sketch and the doodle. All right. So at the same time, we should realize that distinctions we might make between artistic pages, uh, where the aesthetic beauty of the page dominates, dominates, and text pages where text and gloss dominate, uh, is not a clear-cut one in many cases. Uh, even the manuscripts where we might have the impulse to go on about the aesthetic beauty of the page design, let's go to the next one now, are filled in later by medieval readers according to the demands of present need. Often readers seem to be oblivious or even to destroy wantonly the what we perceive to be the balance and aesthetic beauty of the pages design. This is a medical collection from the uh, Austrian National Library. So I mean, we can see the carefully structured uh, two-column form. You can maybe even perceive, perceive some of the ruling here, some of the uh, that goes on, but readers have completely ignored that, uh, placing things between lines, um, even some things way down here. And if you'll hit the next one, uh, this beautiful illuminated initial that I'm surprised no one has sliced out of it yet uh, is, uh, is written over by the uh, medieval reader, putting his notes there. So the idea is not our idea of this is a static object of beauty, but um, uh, one of present use for this medieval reader. 
uh, similar manuscripts may have been laid out with the specific intent of inviting subsequent glosses into their design. Let's go to the next one. Um, as when these uh, especially wide margins are, are, are present in the, in the page design. Um, <clears throat> this is a work of both spurious and genuine works of Aristotle. But you can see that even leaving these, these broad spaces for glosses, and these glosses seem to have been placed in spaces. We were looking at some samples of medieval rulings and prickings and, and the way that these sec, uh, spaces were established, both for text and gloss and some of the materials you have here. Um, these seem to be fitting into those spaces rather, rather neatly. They seem to be following the rules. But even having this, this carefully structured page uh, that doesn't protect it from these unruly uh, writers down here who uh, pay no attention whatsoever to the way the lines are running to the, the spaces in which glosses are supposed to, con to which glosses are supposed to confine themselves. And this was probably written in once the book had been bound. I think that's part of it there. Um, so uh, text, uh, along with illustration, can be used to control the spaces of the medieval manuscript. Let's go to the next one. This is a manuscript of uh, Valerius Maximus's uh, Factorum et Dictorum Memor uh, Memorabil uh, Memorabilium Libri uh, Non. Uh, this, um, you can see here, that uh, these elements uh, fill up. The, this is the text, and then this is the gloss. Uh, these elements sort of inoculate the page against the kind of readerly intervention we saw before uh, and make this combination of text and gloss and no other authoritative. Uh, there's, it's hard to figure out where, I mean, where you could stick something in there. And every page of this manuscript is like this, and every design of gloss is different shapes. Uh, right. Yes? This one, no, this is probably, uh, this book was designed to include text and gloss. Uh, and probably you can, you can tell that because of the small textual space devoted to the text uh, and then the, the planning and design that went into the gloss. This is probably a standard gloss on this text that was reproduced along with it in, as the manuscript was were copied, or it was copied into it, but very well planned. Uh, okay. All right, so let's go to, to the next one. I think we're ready for that. Uh, at the opposite extreme, uh, we find many manuscript pages with nothing or nearly nothing on them at all. And again, this is probably not people's idea of a typical medieval page. Uh, this is the, uh, some of the front pages of a student uh, miscellany, and we've seen a bit of that before. And here we can see that these uh, students' ambitious plans to kind of produce an alphabetical index uh, of the sententiae that are found in the manuscript, I've, I've engaged in that sort of thing too, so I feel sorry for this guy, I understand. Uh, he's, uh, yeah, so he's only managed, he's only gotten far enough to actually include one proverb. Um, it's this one up here, it says, lege, re lege, nam poteret or, uh, mora quod nequit ora. I like this. It says, uh, read and reread for what you can do over time, you cannot do in, a, in an hour. Or in what you cannot do in an hour, you can do with, by taking things easy and slow. Okay. But this proverb is recorded once under the L for lege, the first word, and again here with under the M for mora. 
Uh, and we don't, you can see that he's also underlined ora, which makes me think that somewhere there was going to be the same proverb entered under ora, so you wouldn't miss it. Uh, and so uh, you can see how this could go on and on with uh, just alphabetizing this one proverb forever. And uh, this page, you sort of think that probably this page was not completed, uh, that this idea of the indexing that this person had, uh, his complex cross-referencing of every proverb, just kind of collapsed under the weight of its own uh, complexity. Let's just uh, go quickly. I think I'm going to skip a couple slides here. So go on next, next, next. There we go. Let's stop there. Um, to this point, I've been discussing the pages of the 21st century medieval manuscript as if they're a two-dimensional entity which exists in contact with the world of the reader, the medieval reader or the modern reader, yes, but is somehow isolated from other pages. And obviously the way that I've been displaying them here as slides uh, sort of uh, creates that illusion, even if nothing else did. Uh, the neat proportions of the page, as we've been looking at it so far, simply vanish once we've turned over that first recto page uh, in the manuscript. In practice, the overwhelming majority of pages in medieval manuscripts, logically enough, probably 99% of them, are two pages, right? a verso page on the left and a recto on the right. And this may be one of the chief differences uh, between, I think, between the new form of the page based on the computer screen and older forms. Uh, for the most part, if you are looking at a page uh, as part of a web page or reading with a P on a PDA or one of these sort of electronic forms of the book, you see only one page at a time. Uh, and, and really, uh, I think it's uh, a matter of some concern that many of these projects now that are digitizing medieval manuscripts and putting them up on the web, I mean, it's a wonderful and valuable thing, but they tend to work with the unit of the page rather than you know, the bifolium with the, with the two-sided page, um, which is the most natural unit of the codex form. Uh, and with our new technologies, then, we kind of risk repeating uh, the sort of attitudes of early printers who imagine that once we've digitized these things, we've somehow captured their essence. Now, I don't think most people uh, who work on digitization really think that, but I think some users of these images may think that. Um, and so I don't think we can afford to ignore the fact that uh, this is more likely to be the shape of the medieval page. Uh, even in isolation, uh, recto and verso pages have a different feel to them, and that's another thing you can see very easily in these models of, of book uh, rulings that you, that you have here at the Rare Book School, to see how the, ver the recto page has one design, the verso page another, to, to create this balance. Um, the real world of the page, however, is, is almost always accompanied by this sort of failed mirror image of itself, or lost twin. In a codex form book, we're always aware, if only peripherally, of what is to come, what has come before, of our own situation in the past and future of reading. And I don't think we, we really think about how aware we are of that other page, even as we focus on the one uh, beneath our eyes. And I think this tendency to reproduce medieval pages in isolation will uh, blind us to the fact that medieval readers operated under no such limitations. Uh, let's, this one, no, let's stay right here. As we can see in this one, uh, if, if we were just reproducing <coughs> one side of it, I, 
let's say this side right here on over, it's kind of cut off there, which is not cool, but anyway, uh, we would miss the fact that this reference over here actually points to this gloss over here. This one here points up there. Uh, this one down here goes across there. So the sense of the page depends on having, uh, of this opening here, depends on having two, the two pages side by side. Um, so the, the world of the medieval page doesn't end at the gutter, as some of our own worlds might. I don't know. Okay. Uh, an annotation on one page uh, refers to the text on the next and vice versa. Uh, these pages can only be understood together. And together they dramatize much of what's going on in the medieval world page. Uh, up here, okay, there's a little drawing. Let's hit the, let's get the next one going up here. This is a sort of enlargement of it. Uh, you can see that there's this uh, hand pointing up here to, uh, what, what do the students in Michael's seminar read here? Anybody? Deus. Okay. So Deus is here sort of reigning over the, uh, over the page. But down here near the bottom as a sort of counterbalance, we have a very pagan figure. This is Janus. Um, let's hit the uh, thing again. We'll see. Um, all right, that's a little bit of a, a blow-up of Janus there. Um, he's sitting appropriately enough here in the gutter between two pages. I think that's really beautiful, the way that uh, Janus is situated there. And he's not a pagan god. He's a figure of, of discourse. This is a, uh, uh, an art of poetry, uh, a text about how to write uh, good poetry. And so what they're telling you here, uh, there it is, um, as a being an uh, imitating Janus, look both forwards and backwards as you write, is the, is the implication there. And so the, I think the Janus figure in this particular manuscript is a very handy symbol for the issues I'm discussing here today. The 21st century medieval manuscript does not just look at itself. It's not self-contained. Rather, like the open pages here, the page looks both forward and backward, toward the preceding page and the following, toward the past and future of the manuscript, and outward towards the past and future of readers, even as it sits firmly in the present. Um, I want to focus just, to, just briefly on the edge of the manuscript page, on the place where the, pa the world of the page encounters the world of the reader. And remember that one of the reasons for the wide margins in medieval manuscripts is because they knew hands would be there and wanted to keep them far away from the text. Uh, next one. This page uh, presents a rather interesting case where uh, the textual space is already fragmented. You can see that up this far, it uh, sort of looks like any other carefully designed medieval page. There was space here for the, these are dates over here, space here for glossing, but uh, something got left out right about here. I, I can't find the exact mark. You can see a mark here that tells us we, we have to put it up here somewhere. And so they created another textual space using the same dimensions, the same rulings, but this time in the margin. So uh, text, a, a new textual space has been created in the margin. And it's, it's dressed up to look just like any of the other textual spaces on the page, a signal that uh, this, well, interestingly enough, uh, this uh, gloss here tells us that this uh, large island off the, the main text talks about uh, King Arthur of Britain. 
And uh, so this, this island here is kind of a uh, marginal textual avalon from which the king may someday return to the center of his world. And there are a lot of kind of neat things like that, more than you would imagine happen uh, in these manuscripts. But uh, and why don't you hit the next thing, and we'll see that a little closer up. I'm sorry that this is so blurry, but here's this space. Here's the mark that tells us to insert it uh, up here somewhere. Here, there is Arturius Rex Britanniae there. As you can see, there's one more thing down here, and we'll look at that. Um, that one is about to fall off the edge of the world, it looks like. And this note, go ahead and hit the, the next, okay. It's, it's still hard to read, and I apologize for that. But this is not in the Latin of the text. It's actually in Castilian, and it says, Remembranza che Leonardo, the memory that Leonardo. Uh, and it seems to perhaps be the attempt of a reader to record some sort of personal memory, uh, the memory of something that Leonardo did or was supposed to do. Uh, it's, is, you know, and the question is, uh, is this a memory of a reader or scribe's life experience that's being glossed here? In other words, does this gloss not gloss what's in the center of the manuscript, but what's in the reader? All right? So this, this liminal space between text and reader in the margin can gloss both things at once. Um, okay. So uh, the two worlds of the reader and the text kind of join here at the edge. And uh, the, the glossatory space is the space that links them. And I, I think this, this quote here is, is uh, especially beautiful, this sort of uh, ironic, uh, bittersweet uh, act that sets out to record a memory and instead records an act of forgetting. We don't know what we're supposed to remember about Leonardo. And by placing this already broken memory here, uh, the, the writer even seems to be trying to be sure it is forgotten, uh, because this is the place where words most often disappear, uh, from, by rubbing fingers or exposure at the edges or through trimming. So there's a lot of times, too, when these more personal messages seem to be positioned to be ephemeral to be there for a certain time until uh, the next uh, trimming occurs. All right, let's go on very quickly here um, to the next one. Uh, this one is uh, 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 sort of anticipates postmodern architecture. You can see the structural elements of the page very clearly here, uh, the way the textual space was designed, but um, probably as a result of uh, maybe overzealous scraping uh, during the preparation of the parchment, or as I, as I just saw, maybe of uh, an exit wound, uh, the page, once again, uh, lays bare the processes of its own production. Uh, the, it dramatizes another, in another way that the, the material support and manuscript text can come together to defy this apparent two-dimensional uh, two and sequential nature of the medium. Uh, I call these peekaboos. Um, you can actually see through the hole in the manuscript to, uh, now that this verso has been turned over, to a page you've already read. But you can see those words in a new context. Of course, when that page was over here, you could see through the hole to a page you were going to read. Uh, and so uh, the, I think this really brings home the, home the fact that our readings are dependent on the organic and the natural, uh, that this hole in the parchment allows us to peer through uh, at the past of reading, 
and I think then that the medieval page challenges uh, the very nature of our conventions like two-dimensionality or sequentiality that we take to be givens of the manuscript page. We can see the layers of the manuscript page just looking at this one. Um, so I think... Uh, just to sort of summarize up to this point, the 21st century medieval manuscript occupies simultaneously a physical role, a textual role, a personal, a temporal role, uh, even if all these roles are separated at time by decades or centuries. But all of these roles are present now as we look at them. And so, um, you know, my argument is there are no medieval manuscripts uh, uh, whatever manuscripts, uh, medieval manuscripts they may, uh, there may have been were all destroyed in the Middle Ages. Uh, the manuscripts we've seen today are 21st century manuscripts. And by the way, I wanted to let librarians here know that you're going to have to go back through your catalogs and where it says 13th century manuscript, 14th century, you're going to have to update it. Yeah. Fortunately, we're at the beginning of the century, so you won't have to do it again. Okay. Yeah. Most of you. Okay. Um, just, just a couple more examples because they're, I think they're quite interesting. Uh, sometimes meaning is made in manuscripts by the same destructive forces that we think destroy meaning. Uh, the very destructive forces I mentioned at the beginning that our librarians and our uh, careful procedures are there to guard against. That is things like erasure, uh, effacement. Let's go to the next slide. But these things can work to make meaning for us. This is a page from the, uh, a manuscript now in the Cathedral Library of Burgo de Osma in Old Castile. And this is a text of the pseudo-Turpin, uh, a fantastical account of Charlemagne's supposed adventures uh, against the Moors in the Iberian Peninsula, uh, supposedly a first-hand account by Archbishop Turpin, who, in some versions, of course, dies before he could actually write this account. Um, a part of this particular uh, branch of the text also includes a discussion of the Navarrese people, which we find in the, also in a 12th century guide for pilgrims uh, along the road to Santiago de Compostela. Uh, the author of the Pilgrim's Guide, who's a Frenchman, doesn't have a very high opinion of the Navarrese Basques and their social practices or cultural practices. And uh, one of the fam most famous passages in the Pilgrim's Guide is this uh, Frenchman's account of the Navarrese's inherent jealousy in their amorous predilections. Um, and it includes the only literary reference I'm aware of to equine chastity belts. Um, okay. <laughs> okay. So the, uh, the French author of this uh, guide also gives us an Isidorian etymology of the name Navarrese. Uh, Let's go to the next one, then. Okay, so this is the standard text. Undi navarus interpretator non verus, all right, id est non vera progenie aut legitima prosapia generatus. Let's click again, and we'll, I think we got the translation. Okay, so navar is interpreted non verus, meaning not true, that is, not born of true ancestry or a legitimate stock. All right. Okay, so let's, uh, let's go on, then. Um, all right, so here's a, a zooming in on that text. Uh, this is that text we were just looking at. Uh, and in this particular manuscript, a reader, whom is almost certainly a Navarrese, uh, doesn't like this particular char characterization and has taken the liberty of bringing in a knife and scraping off this known and this edest known. Uh, so now, uh, I guess you would say it reads... Uh, 
there, there, uh, once Navaris is interpreted true, uh, of true uh, legitimacy, of, tr uh, of true uh, generation, and of uh, legitimate birth. Uh, just to give a simple, uh, okay. And so by this simple procedure, he's eliminated these offending negatives. Uh, and uh, so with the scrape of a knife, he's, of course, gotten rid of the Frenchman's uh, naughty pun there. Uh, it's naughty pun, I guess I'd say. Uh, but he has restored the reputation of the Navarrese and their lineage, okay, the legitimacy. Uh, and, of course, we don't know when that scraping occurred. It could have been a 15th century Navarrese. could have been a 20th century one, I suppose. We don't really have a paleography of erasure, unfortunately. Um, but I think this, uh, this particular example shows the enduring power of manuscript texts to engage their readers long after the text is copied. For uh, this man, uh, the manuscript was about this reader. And it was in his power to reshape the text in his own self-image, his own preferred self-image. Uh, and in this case, the blade was mightier than the pen. Um, all right. um, so uh, I want to I just sneak in one more example because it's another fun one. Um, I think uh, that we have trained ourselves to make our, our chronological separations also separations in what we look at. In medieval manuscripts that are now found in modern libraries, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of annotations from the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. Uh, those are basically invisible because medievalists don't want to look at uh, medieval at glosses that happen after the Middle Ages, and I don't think that. 18th century scholars, for example, spend a lot of time in medieval manuscript books. And so an important part of the cultural history of the 17th and 18th centuries is, is invisible because our disciplinary boundaries keep us from seeing them. Uh, this final example, and let's go on to, us, to this for a second, is an example of a manuscript that just won't stay in the Middle Ages. Uh, already in the first gathering uh, here, you can see that a reader... Uh, has placed there a rather discomforting reminder of the post-medieval presence of this particular text. Uh, this Bagmaler has written there uh, the year 1630. It's kind of a Kilroy thing, I think. Kilroy was here in 1630. Um, kind of like what you'd see on a, you know, a, a stone on a tourist spot or on a restroom wall somewhere. Uh, this shows that as, as late as the 17th century, this was still an active manuscript. It was a place where someone was and where somebody expected other people to come and see that he had been. Uh, and we get a, li a little more information on Bagmaler in the next note, a couple folios later. I think that's, that's 10 uh, recto, and I think the next one is uh, 12 verso. Uh, those that kind of got eaten on the edge. Well, let's hit, hit it once more. Let's see what happens. There we go. Okay. Uh, I'll kind of read this for you. It says, Jean de Bagmaler de Laurent en Berne uh, lisait ce livre L'an uh, 1630, la, uh, la peste ayant cessé dans Toulouse. Uh, Jean de Bagmaler read this book uh, in the year 1630 when the plague had ended in Toulouse. 
for some reason, it's important to let us know that he was reading this book. Maybe he considered it, as we do, a kind of an achievement to be able to read something in this old hand. But it's kind of odd that in that sort of statement that a reference to the plague should come in. What does the plague have to do with his reading? Is this kind of a temporal marker? Is it an important event? Uh, he's saying, I survived. Uh, we, we don't know exactly why that reference is so important to the 17th century person. Um, and as it happens, you, we can actually date this reading rather accurately because uh, within a couple months, because in June of uh, July of 1630, the plague seemed to have been over. People thought, okay, it's done. We're not, get, you know, not getting any more new cases of plague. People were breathing a sigh of relief and saying the plague is over. Uh, it broke out again, however, with new strength in August and September of the same year. And it may be that... Uh, Jean's reading, which seems to have stopped with the first gathering, was cut short by the plague itself. Um, and this isn't the only sort of post-medieval passage through a manuscript that, that we could find if we started looking, and I think they're very, very interesting. Uh, they kind of trouble our work, these sort of intrusions, uh, of putting medieval manuscripts in their proper historical and disciplinary space. So I'm going to make my concluding point here under a rubric, Pastorella Pestis. Pastorella isn't a French song about a shepherd girl in this case. It's about Louis Pasteur. Pastorella Pestis is the rod-shaped bacillus of the bubonic plague, uh, which was named after Louis Pasteur, uh, and probably known, better known today as Yersinia Pestis. Uh, I was reading this in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris a while back, uh, sitting there in the Salle des Manuscrits, and there's a vernacular text with a very difficult hand in it, and I was bending down, really getting my nose in the text, trying to decipher uh, decipher it. I was also, at that point, too vain to have gotten bifocals, so I had to really get down in there. And um, a question kind of popped into my head. Um, how long does plague bacillus lie dormant? <laughs> and... Uh, this concern was heightened because I'd, I'd been reading about the plague and, and learned that the plague actually was believed to have started because uh, this plague in, in southern France in the 1620s was believed to have started when a greedy tanner up at Saint-Fleur in, uh, in the Auvergne uh, didn't want to waste the hide of a cow that had died of plague. And so he tanned it and used it for parchment. Uh, we don't know. Okay. Uh, in fact, I thought if anybody here, you know, I wonder if anybody does know how long the, the plague bacillus uh, can lie around. Uh, so far, so good. All right. And I'm, I'm simply going to let Pastorella Pestis then, this plague bacillus, stand here, uh, stand here for the potential of the 21st century medieval manuscript to exceed the limitations we would place upon it. Once we remove this imaginary temporal wall, we open up ourselves, our students, to the danger that medieval manuscript texts might interact with us, might penetrate not just our scholarly lives, but our personal lives. Uh, and we, in a very similar move, try to imagine that our scholarly lives are separate from our personal ones. Um, so uh, I think in the 21st century, we're going to need to begin to ask, what is the danger to good disciplinary hygiene? when these so-called medieval manuscripts are seen not in terms of origin, history, or as a window on something else, but as sources of contagion. Uh, we have to explore the possibility that the 20th century manuscript is more than an object to be cataloged, described, represented, sold, edited, 
reproduced on greeting cards. Uh, we must insist that it be a thing to be read now, as well as in time, something which could take our lives, save our souls. Uh, both we and our manuscripts are, after all, in the 21st century. Thank you.